If you have a Bible with you, let me encourage you to open up to the book of Romans. We're in Romans chapter 1, and I got out a little bit ahead of myself last week by covering three verses, so we're slowing back down, all right? I'm bringing it back down. We're doing one verse this morning, Romans 1, verse 5. This is really a part two message. This will be part one, verse 5. We'll do part two, Lord willing, next week, verses 6 and 7. But the title for the sermon is The Purpose of the Gospel. The Purpose of the Gospel. We're looking at Romans 1. I'll read 5 through 7, but we'll just be focusing on verse 5 together this morning. Paul writes, Through whom we have received grace and apostleship, to bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, including you who are called to belong to Jesus Christ, to all those in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we're grateful this morning to be able to gather, to gather, to acknowledge that we depend on you, that you are our song in the night, that you are our God, and we take refuge in you this morning, and we want to learn, teach us to abide in you, teach us to understand the gospel to a greater degree, its prevalence, not only in bringing us to saving faith, but also sustaining us in our sanctification and allowing us to have a message and a purpose to proclaim your name, that all nations might come to know and fear the living God and to experience a relationship with you through your son, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you would be glorified in our time together in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, Christopher Columbus labored for seven years to convince European monarchs, Queen Isabella and King Ferdinand, to finance his seaborne explorations. Finally, winning their support, Columbus set sail on August the 3rd, 1492, in order to sail the ocean blue. In his official diary, Columbus recorded a remarkable set of perspectives while on his famous voyage. He was not sailing or exploring for himself, but he was ultimately sailing by the will of God. Columbus wrote, quote, I prayed to the most merciful Lord about my heart's great desire. He gave me the spirit and the intelligence for the task. Seafaring astronomy, geometry, and arithmetic, you know, all the things you've mastered in the eighth grade. Uh, There was also skill in drafting spherical maps and placing correctly the cities, rivers, mountains, and ports. I also studied cosmology and uh, history and chronology and philosophy, Columbus added. It was the Lord who put it into my mind. I could feel his hand upon me. The fact that it would be possible to sail from here to the Indies. All who heard of my project rejected it with laughter, ridiculing me. There is no question that the inspiration was from the Holy Spirit because he comforted me, the Holy Scriptures, encouraging continually to press forward and without ceasing for a moment, the Scriptures now encourage me to make haste, he professed. And his continuing remarks, this is amazing, right? This is all from Christopher Columbus's official diary. He, he continues to remark about, about how it was the unshakable confidence and the purpose of his calling was found in God. 
I mean, Columbus continued, quote, all things must come to pass that have been written by the prophets. I am a most unworthy sinner, but I have cried out to the Lord for grace and mercy. I have found the sweetest consolation since I made it my whole purpose to enjoy his marvelous presence. Columbus continues, no one should fear to undertake any task in the name of our Savior. The working out of all things has been assigned to each person by our Lord. The fact that the gospel must still be preached to many lands in such a short time, this is what convinces me. You ever read this by Christopher Columbus? If one uh, didn't know of the source of these statements, it would be easy to think that they might have come from even a protege of the Apostle Paul. Christopher Columbus obviously lived many years after Paul, but he had a remarkably similar outlook on life, that God is the ruler of all things, that we are his servants, that he communicates his will to us, that we are responsible to fulfill it, that the scriptures are our guide, the Holy Spirit is our strength, courage is our banner, and the gospel is our message. And while no one should ever claim that Christopher Columbus or any of us are perfect Christians, and Christopher Columbus also had no apostolic credentials, but one thing can be said is that his identity as a faithful servant of God is clear. And unfortunately, history books have removed much of his Christian identity, but the writings from his own hand make it clear. In a unique and fantastic way, Romans 1 reveals the same thing about the Apostle Paul. There was no mistaking Paul's identity by those who knew him, nor for those of us who read his writings. Paul was, without a doubt, a charter member of the company of the committed. And Paul wanted to make sure that the church in Rome was able to hear his heart and appreciate his apostolic adventure and also his apostolic authority. And so Paul makes it clear in the prologue of this epistle, Paul makes it clear that he is committed to his calling to ministry, which miraculously came from God. Paul makes it clear that he believes that God wanted the Roman believers to partner with him in further ministry. And of all places, he was gonna try to get them to help give to the effort that would go forth in Spain where Christopher Columbus sailed some 1,500 years later. Paul definitely wants to make sure the content and the calling of the gospel were abundantly clear as the only means of grace that could change the world. Paul was on a mission to glorify God among all the nations, and Paul was making sure that the believers in Rome understood that God had called them from eternity past. And God, uh, Paul wanted to make sure that the believers in Rome knew that they were loved by God and that they were called to be saints and that they belonged to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so this maps out for us, these verses that we'll be looking at this week and next week, verses five through seven, really map out for us three headings as we look at the purpose of the gospel. Today, we'll just look at number one, the substantial intent of the gospel to glorify God among all nations, verse five. And then next week, we're gonna look at the specific inclusion of the gospel to save those called from eternity past in verse six. And then number three, the successful impact of the gospel to radically transform people from verse seven. 
But this morning, we're just looking at verse 1, and we're looking at the substantial intention or the, the substantial intent of the gospel, which was to glorify God among all nations. Your first blank, if you are taking notes, is taken from the first part of verse 5, and it just says grace and apostleship. Grace and apostleship. Notice in verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And so here in verse 5, we're just going to be focusing on these three phrases included in this verse. And just from this one verse, we'll see the nature of grace as a free and undeserved enabling for ministry. The effect of grace is the obedience of faith. And the ultimate goal of grace is glorifying Christ's name among all peoples of the earth. And each one of these phrases, just here in verse 5, each one of these phrases, when you first look at them, it may feel a little bit like a broom closet. Like there's just a couple of words there to be said, not much to it. But as you open up the door to that broom closet, you'll start to understand that you're really entering into Aladdin's cave. You're really entering into all the treasures and all the wealth that you could ever find. They can be found in these simply put profound phrases. And these verses here at the beginning of Romans are like seeds that Paul is planting, which lead to the strength of an entire forest of truth and of doctrine and of stability. And if you'll remember at the end of verse 4, we saw that God declared Jesus to be the Son of God in power. And we see this as in accordance with the Holy Spirit by his involvement in Christ's resurrection from the dead. That was verse 4. And so starting off in verse 5, it says, through whom, that would be through Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. Now the first question I want to ask here is just listed in your outline. Number one, what is the connection between grace and and apostleship. We've been talking about Christ being raised from the dead. Again, this is declared by God in power. The Holy Spirit's involved. Now Christ is raised from the dead. Again, verse 5, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. And my question is, what is the connection between grace and apostleship in verse 5? I don't believe that the word grace and apostleship should be separated into two different categories in this verse. And in fact, these two words could even be potentially combined to refer to the glorious apostolate that Paul received, as Calvin writes about in his own commentary. He calls it the glorious apostolate. And so let me give you a few reasons why I think that grace and apostleship go hand in hand together when you think about it from the beginning of verse 5. First, these two words are connected by the, co the coordinating conjunction or connective conjunction, chi. Some of you are taking Greek and you've heard the word chi over and over again. It's the word and in the original language. And it typically indicates that there is a close and somewhat um, synonymous connection between two words that are on equal playing field. And so he's connecting here grace and apostleship in the same phrase. Second, to detach Paul's commission as an apostle from his conversion by grace would be a mistake. Grace and apostleship are inexplicably bound together in Paul's life. And so we should not isolate the grace given in conversion from the grace that was installed to Paul as an apostle. 
Third, in his context, the focus is on Paul's apostolic ministry and his commission as the apostle to the Gentiles. Any reference to his conversion, apart from his call as an apostle, would fit awkwardly with the flow of thought here in the prologue to the book of Romans. So all I'm trying to simply say here is that Paul is discussing the grace of being called to be an apostle, to be an apostle indeed is a high and a holy calling, and it was all by God's grace. Remember, Paul was a murderer. Paul was a persecutor of the church. Paul was a pharisaical Jew who was looking to his own approval from God by adhering to legalistic Jewish law. Paul was as he mentioned in Philippians 3, 5 through 7, remember he was circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He was a Hebrew of Hebrews as to the law, a Pharisee as to zeal, a persecutor of the church as to righteousness. He was under the law, blameless. And so Paul thought that he was doing the right thing. And he thought that because of his religious zeal that he would somehow earn favor with God. And he thought that, that, that zeal would accomplish this for him. But you need to know this morning that zeal without truth can be deceptively enticing. And so Christ stopped Paul dead in his tracks on the road to Damascus. And he told him to stop kicking against the goats. That Paul would no longer be able to resist God's grace. And in Paul's life, not only did God's grace save him, but called him to be an apostle. Jesus said in Acts 9, 15, through the words of Ananias in Acts 9, 18, it says that Paul was to be a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. And so the fact that, that Paul was chosen, it was to show the grace of God. And the fact that Paul was chosen to be an instrument of Christ's name, to carry that name before the Gentiles and before kings and before the children of Israel, it was all a picture of how God's grace in Paul's life and the apostleship that God called Paul to go together hand in hand. Grace of apostleship, grace and apostleship. The other obvious question that comes up with this phrase is who is Paul referring to when he says we? He does say there in verse five, through whom we have received grace and apostleship. So who is it that Paul is talking about when he says we have received grace and apostleship? Well, we is in the plural and is often understood to include other apostles besides Paul. But in this verse, I believe that Paul is only referring to himself as what some would call the editorial we. Other evidence that Paul is only referring to himself would be that Paul never mentions any other apostles in the book of Romans. Paul was also keenly aware that he had a unique ministry as an apostle to the Gentiles. And even more decisively is the observation that in verses 8 through 16, it uses the steady repetition of the first person singular, indicating that Paul was thinking only of his own apostolic ministry. And then it is also true that the first person plural in Pauline writings is often associated with an apostolic plural that designates Paul singularly. So to summarize... We received, I believe, as a reference to Paul, who singularly was in a recipient of the grace and apostleship. 
It was grace that saved Paul, and it was grace that called Paul to be an apostle. You may say at this point, great, thanks a lot, Adam, for clearing that up in the grammar of, of uh, you know, verse 5, but what does that really have to do with me? If you're telling me that's all about the grace of apostleship for Paul, how could I benefit from that this morning? Well, let me just remind you that the same grace and the same calling that Paul was surrendering to is the same grace and the same calling we surrender to. Now, you and I are not apostles with a capital A, but we are ambassadors for Christ. And just like Paul was saved by grace, our salvation and our sanctification, our salvation being saved and our sanctification doing ministry for God ought to be connected. And so the second uh, blank there, I want you to see number two is what is grace? And where do we see it in the book of Romans? What is grace and where do we see it in the book of Romans? I mean, this is the first time the word grace is mentioned here in the epistle here in verse 5. The word grace is used over 155 times in the New Testament. And over 100 of those are from the pen of Paul. And out of the 100 times Paul mentions it, 24 of them are found right here in the book of Romans. And so grace is obviously an important word, an important rich word. concept for us to make sure we understand. And so we see grace found the first time here in verse 5. Now, you've probably heard the acrostic grace. I remember hearing as a kid growing up about how grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And I remember the first time I ever heard that, I was like, man, whoever came up with that was brilliant because that is a great definition that I've never forgotten about what grace really is. God's riches at Christ's expense. We're talking about grace is a gift. It's a gift from God. And it's a gift that came through Christ's death on the cross. Grace is unmerited. It is unearned favor in which a believer himself does not and cannot contribute anything of worth. Paul explains grace in Ephesians 2, 8, and 9, where he writes, For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It's a gift of God, not of works, so that no one may boast. I mean, grace is God's loving mercy through which he grants salvation as a gift to those who trust in his son. And grace can only be received, as Romans 1, 5 says. Grace can never be worked for in order to have, as with a calloused hand. This grace is not earned. It is not deserved. It is not merited. It is not worked for. It is received as a free gift. And the reason I'm continuing here is because as soon as we come to the word grace in this epistle for the first time, we must realize that we have now struck a gold mine. The entire gospel can be summarized in this one word, grace. The entire book of Romans could be summarized in this one word, grace. And so here in verse 5, we put our finger on the ultimate live nerve because the gospel is a gospel of grace. You know, when I worked in surgery, we would occasionally strike a live nerve in someone's body while we're operating. And if you just kind of glance up again a little bit, the person would twitch. But if you really hit that nerve in the wrong spot, the person would jump, even though they were still under anesthesia. That's what I want you to do. Every time I mention the word grace in Romans, I just want you to jump. 
You know, I want you to just twitch a little bit and feel the power that's going on as this verse and as this word is being proclaimed because this word is a power keg. This word is an intention grabber. This word is a life changer. So don't ignore what Paul is saying here, that that grace is God's unmerited favor upon guilty sinners. We are perishing and we are now in Christ if we've repented and that's all because of God's grace. Grace is by God's own initiative. It is by God's own accomplishment. It is by God's own application. It is for God's own glory. Grace starts with God. It flows through God and it's freely given by God. Salvation is all by grace. There's no part of the gospel which is not marked by grace. Grace is the compassionate response of a a superior to an inferior. And God gives his priceless and precious son of infinite worth to die in the place of those who have no spiritual capital whatsoever. We could never work for it or earn it. We don't deserve it. And it covers in its entirety everything that is coming to us in salvation. The Bible says every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 1.3, it comes to us by grace. Grace includes pardon from sin. It includes the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It includes being delivered from our enslavement to sin. It includes the gift of the Holy Spirit. It includes the divine enablement now uh, to, to live and to overcome in the Christian life. It includes bringing us home all the way to glory in heaven. From start to finish, it's all of grace. And so let me just walk you through a few chapters of grace in Romans, just through chapter six, so that you can see the prevalence of grace in this epistle. Turn with me, if you will, to Romans 3.24. Romans 3.24 says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So this verse makes it clear that our acceptance with God is based on nothing that we do. It's based upon what God has done for us in Christ, right? This verse says that grace is a gift, right? Grace is given to us as a free gift. This is not 98% God and 2% us, right? This is not a buddy pass with Delta where the airfare is free, but you still have to pay for the airport tax. No, this is 100% of God and 0% of us, or you may not have it. It's all or nothing. Look at Romans 4. Turn over to chapter 4, verse 16. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace. Now, that's a, that's a very important statement because it says that grace will only work with faith. Grace will never work with works. Grace and faith are cooperative agents of God. And grace will only work with faith. And and we see here that justification is by faith and in accordance with grace. Look at chapter 5, verse 2. Through him we we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And so here in 5.2 we see that grace refers to the entirety of the Christian life. Paul's talking about this grace in which we now stand and and everything that follows in verses 3, 4, and 5, it's all by grace. So what we need to understand is 
Not only are we saved by grace, but we stand by grace, which means we're, we're sanctified by grace, we're strengthened by grace, we're sustained by grace, we serve by grace, we enter through the narrow gate by grace, but we also progress down the narrow path by grace. I mean, it's just all of grace. We have received an introduction into this grace the moment we are saved. And our lives in Christ also continue by grace. Look, look at chapter five, verse 15. It says, but the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. So there in verse 15 of Romans 5, we see that grace has, has just been poured into our lives. Oceans of grace, right? galaxies of grace have been funneled into our lives through the Lord Jesus Christ, through this one man. I mean, guilt came through Adam, the first man, but grace has come through Christ, the second man. Now look down at verse 17, for because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man. Much more will those who receive the abundance of grace. So again, we, we see here the abundance of grace. This is as much grace as you could ever possibly need or use. This, this, there's more grace here than you and I could ever receive in a million lifetimes. Verse 20 now the law came into increase, the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Are you hearing what this verse says? No matter how much sin you and I have committed or do commit or will commit in the future, praise God, his grace is more. Far more grace to forgive, far more grace to cleanse us, far more grace to enable us to live in a manner that is pleasing to God. It's all grace. In the next verse, verse 21, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness. So grace has uh, an enormous authority and power to reign like a king over our lives. Right now at this very moment as believers, we're under the reign of grace and grace is powerfully working in our lives, transforming us and conforming us into the image of Christ. Do you, do you think of, of grace as only that first step again that gets you through the narrow gate? Well, grace is also that which enables us to continue in our life for Christ. It enables us to continue every second of every moment of every hour, of every day, of every week, of every month, of every year of our lives. It's grace. It's all grace. And we continue to see that in Romans chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. And then look down at verse 14, where Paul writes, For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under the law, but under grace. Uh, again, it's like grace is the ruling monarch, and we are the citizens that are under this pervasive, powerful, dominant reign of grace in our lives. Grace here is almost synonymous with the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Grace is the principle and the Holy Spirit is the person. 
but it is this grace and this reign of grace that's ruling over us if we're in Christ this morning. It's, it's verse 17 again of Romans 6, 17, but thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. The word thanks there in the beginning of verse 17, it's the same word that's translated as grace. So our our thanks to God is a a response to his grace as Paul used even the word, uh, the same word for grace here. And so you just need to know this morning that the grace of God in your life is like a jet engine that is enabling you and that it's empowering you and that it's driving you to serve this almighty God, not so much out of duty as out of a delight and out of a a drive that he's placed in you, like that jet engine again propelling you forward. And you were not saved, and and now it's entirely up to you to maintain it by your own efforts. No, no, this is a, a steady stream of grace that is flowing through your life that is enable you to walk the Christian walk. And so I hope that You've seen from Romans 1, 5 and through these first six chapters of Romans that any and all grace that you have received in your life has come through the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And if this is true of Paul, then this is also true of us as well this morning. And so not only do we see the the intention of the gospel, which is giving grace and apostleship to Paul, but we also see your next blank there that it leads to the obedience of faith the obedience of faith. This is now the second phrase of chapter five that we want to explore a little bit. And first we could say number one under that heading would be faith is a gift. Faith is a gift. Again, we're talking about it's through the Lord Jesus Christ that we've received. And I believe this we is Paul saying, referring to himself, the receipt of grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith. Again, Paul received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience of faith in the life of those in Rome, verse seven, who he's writing to, who were loved by God and called to be saints. And so while the first part of verse five refers primarily to Paul, the second phrase of verse five refers to all believers. And like Paul, every believer is called not only to salvation, but also into service. The phrase here in the middle of verse five, it says the obedience of faith. It's talking about at the beginning of this letter, and it's also used, this phrase, the obedience of faith, is used at the end of the letter. Why don't don't you just take a look at it with me? Hold your place in Romans 1. Go to Romans 16. Romans 16, verses 25 and 26, we see some bookends here of what's being covered throughout this epistle. Look at Romans 16, verse 25. Paul says, now to him who is able to strengthen you, according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that has kept, was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about, here's the phrase, to bring about what? The obedience of faith. To the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ, amen. Well, I would say that these verses here in Romans 16, 25 through 27 are providing the same content as a bookend to what we've been studying in Romans 1, 1 through 7. See, a lot of 
familiar uh, you know, crossover here. There's an emphasis on the gospel being preached. There's a reminder that the gospel was preached and promised beforehand through the prophets and in the holy scriptures. There's an emphasis of the mystery that is to be revealed through the scriptures for the sake of his name, that God would be glorified and that his name would be made known to all nations. And now we see that there's an emphasis Back to verse 5 in the middle, there's an emphasis here. A part of that comes through the obedience of faith. So what does this mean, this phrase, the obedience of faith? And the goal and the purpose for Paul's preaching of the gospel was to bring the Gentiles to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And once a person comes to saving faith, there is an obedience that springs forth and now flows from saving faith. Like grace, faith is a gift from God. And saving faith is not just a strong feeling. Saving faith is not just a a superficial belief in God. Saving faith is not just a, a positive mindset. But faith in the biblical sense has three important elements, which James Montgomery Boyce calls knowledge, heart response, and commitment. Spurgeon calls these same three aspects of faith as knowledge, belief, and trust. Martin Lloyd-Jones calls these same three essential elements of faith as awareness, assent, and commitment. So let's just look at these briefly. You see it there under number two, your blanket number two. Faith is knowledge, belief, and trust. This is Spurgeon's definition of these three, again, essential elements of faith. It's justification by faith. We're not justified by works. We're not justified by obedience. We're not justified by doing good unto others. We're justified by faith. And this includes having a correct knowledge of the gospel. And so turn with me, if you will, to Romans 3, where we see this definition spelled out of of knowledge and of belief and of trust. Romans 3, 21 says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, there is no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift. And so we need to know that the righteousness of God has been revealed and granted to us by faith. The law and the prophets bear witness to this fact The righteousness of God is extended through Jesus Christ. And you must possess this knowledge in order to have saving faith. And we see the passage there, Romans 3, continues in the middle of verse 24, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forth as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he passed over former sins. Again, we're just explaining that faith has knowledge. Faith has belief. There's that assent or that affirmation in your heart that you believe in Jesus to be the only sacrifice for your sins. He's that propitiation that appeases the wrath of God. This is what Christ did. It's by Christ's sacrifice alone that that God shows divine forbearance and forgives us of our sins. And so we see that faith is about knowledge. Faith is about belief. And then there's also that aspect of trust. And so to continue there, 
in Romans 3, verse 26, the means of our justification is by faith. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. What becomes of law by a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. So again, we're seeing that the ultimate trust here is showing that our trust is not in the law, not even in our obedience, it's just in, it's in Christ, in his finished work of the cross. God is the source of our justification. Christ is the ground of our justification. And God-given faith is the means of our justification. And you say, faith in what? Well, it's faith in God. Faith in the fact that God declares us righteous solely on the ground of the redeeming work of Christ. And so faith is about knowing and faith is about believing and faith is about trusting in Christ alone to save you from your sins. And that leads us to the second part of that phrase. It's the obedience of faith. And so we understand number three in your outline that faith obeys. Faith obeys. Now, believe it or not, there are some well-known evangelicals that teach that you can be saved but not participate in any works. It's called non-lordship salvation versus lordship salvation, a big debate that was popularized by some of John MacArthur's books of the gospel according to Jesus and the gospel according to the apostles in the early 90s was really combating some teaching that was going on at the time through Dallas Theological Seminary, and one who taught this non-lordship salvation view was Charles Ryrie, the editor of the popular Ryrie Study Bible. Uh, I like Charles Ryrie. I think he has a lot of excellent um, things to write about in theology, and that's actually a pretty good study Bible. We just differ mainly on this one point about is is faith something that works or can you have faith without works? And so he talks about it there in the study Bible, but I'm not going to pick on Charles Ryrie. I'm going to pick on Zane Hodges this morning. So Zane Hodges, another contemporary with Ryrie there at Dallas Theological Seminary, wrote a book called Absolutely Free. Absolutely Free. And he identifies, this is, all this material is found in, I think, the book, The Gospel According to Jesus and The Gospel According to the Apostles. But in, in Zane Hodge's book, Absolutely Free, he identifies his radical beliefs that you could be saved and never walk in true repentance or in true obedience. Hodges writes this, quote, repentance is not essential to the gospel message. In no sense is repentance related to saving faith. Another quote, faith is a human act, not a gift from God. It occurs in a decisive moment, but does not necessarily continue. True faith can be subverted, be overthrown, collapse, or even turn into unbelief. Oh, it gets worse. Another quote is this, quote, spiritual fruit is not guaranteed in the Christian life. Some Christians spend their lives in a barren wasteland of defeat, confusion, and every kind of evil. Just one more, if you're getting depressed, I'm going to depress you a little bit more. One more quote, it is possible to experience a moment of faith that guarantees heaven for eternity, then 
to turn away permanently and live a life that is utterly barren of any spiritual fruit. Genuine believers, Hodges writes, might even cease to name the name of Christ or confess Christianity. Now listen, I'm here this morning to tell you that that's just plain wrong. All right, that is not congruent with biblical teaching. Faith and obedience go hand in hand, right? Faith alone saves, but obedience applies what you believe in your everyday life. Faith alone justifies, but obedience clarifies your faith in action. Faith alone saves a lost and dying sinner, but faith never remains alone. True saving faith is always accompanied by works of obedience. And that's what this phrase is saying, the obedience of faith. And that's certainly what our Lord Jesus said in John 15, 5, where he said, I am the vine and you are the branches and whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I mean, Jesus said in John 15, 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. It's abundantly clear through the teachings of the gospel in the gospels by Christ and the teaching of the epistles by Paul and others. It's certainly true by James Paul's half-brother who taught this with great clarity in James 2, 14 through 20. You remember this passage, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works, can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well, even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless. And so this is a, a major teaching in the Bible, right? And we see it here in Romans 1, 5. It's abundantly clear from this one scripture verse and all these passages that, that I've brought to your attention that, that faith without works is dead. Genuine God-given faith is a faith in action. It's a faith that's rooted in the knowledge of God. It's a faith that, that is a, a true heart belief. And it's a faith that is a committed trust in God and in his word. And if you have that kind of saving faith with knowledge and belief and trust, then that faith will obey. That faith will walk in obedience. Faith walks in the footsteps of Jesus. Faith is lived out through obedience. And so I hope and pray that there is evidence of the obedience of faith in your life this very morning. And that brings us to our third phrase of verse five, back to Romans 1, 5. This is all done. We're talking about the purpose of the gospel. It's all done 
for uh, the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so see there, you see it on your outline, for the sake of his name among all nations. Two points I want to bring to your attention on uh, that last heading there. Number one, it is all about God's glory being exalted over all things. Again, the so what, the why there given at the end of verse five is clearly stated that it's for the sake of his name among all the nations. And so the question again that's being asked here is why? Why does God choose to give grace and apostleship to Paul? Why does God give each one of us the gift of grace and then call us to be ambassadors for Christ in the obedience of our faith? Why, why does God give saving faith and out of that faith call us and empower us to walk in obedience? And the answer is, at the end of verse five again, it's for the sake of his name. Although God gave his own son to save the world, John 3.16, and although God loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, 2 Thessalonians 2.16, God ultimately does what he does for his own glory, for the sake of his name. We must recognize that the primary purpose of the gospel and the primary goal of the gospel is not for man's sake, but it's for God's sake. The first time I ever heard that was 1997. I was in Austin, Texas at a conference called Passion, where John Piper was one of the speakers who I've never heard of. And John Piper gets up at this conference, there's about 7,000 college students, and I'm sitting there on the front row taking notes because I heard this guy, John Piper, was a great theologian. So I'm like, all right, I'm ready to hear from Piper. And he gets up, and the first thing he says at this Passion Conference was he said, I have a question for you this morning. Did God send Christ to die for you? Or did God send Christ to die for God? And when he asked the question, I'm like, what kind of theologian is this? Of course God sent Christ to die for me. I am a sinner. I need the gospel. God sent Jesus to die for me. What kind of theologian is this? And then Piper, after a dramatic pause, said, God sent Christ to die for God. And I'm going to take the next hour and explain to you why that matters. And for the rest of the hour, I tried to figure out what he was saying. Because for the rest of the hour, I always thought God died for me. I was, I was of the Michael W. Smith above all. He died for me. It was all about me. He poured it out for me. And what Piper is trying to explain is that high view of God. It's what this verse is, that God ultimately does what he does for his own glory. And we see this truth in Romans, the, the preacher of the gospel, Paul, the promise of the gospel from the Old Testament prophets and from the scriptures, the person of the gospel, Jesus Christ, and the power of the gospel, the God-given faith resulting in obedience are all given for the express purpose of glorifying God. All of redemptive history focuses on the glory of God and all throughout eternity, the focus will always be on the glory of God. And so Paul puts it like this in Romans 9, 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I may show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. 
So he says it all throughout the epistle. It's all about God's name being exalted and his power being proclaimed in all the earth. We see that God's aim in history and all that happens is that his name will be known and worshiped. That God will, will deal with world powers in the way that he wants to. And God will triumph over all world events just in the way he intended to. And God will raise up kings and rulers and authorities. And he will depose those same kings and rulers and authorities anytime he wants to. And so here in verse 5, we're seeing that Paul has received grace and apostleship for the sake of his name. We, we see that God will bring about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name. And we see that the name of Jesus, that it would be known and it, it would be loved and that it would be treasured and it would be exalted and it would be glorified. And so the giver of the power that resurrected Jesus from the dead, the creator of all things, the enabler of the obedience is all for God's glory. It's all about God getting glory. It's all for his sake. It's all for his name. It's all for his renown. Isaiah 42 verses 8 and 9 speak of the beauty, the grandeur, and the significance of God being highly exalted over all things. Isaiah 42 verse 8, I am the Lord and that is my name. My glory I will give to no other, nor am I praise to carved idols. Behold, the former things have come to pass and new things I now declare before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And he goes on to say in that chapter of Isaiah 42 to talk about how he's doing a new thing, how those who inhabit his kingdom will sing for joy and shout from the mountaintops, how he will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, how he will guide his people and turn their darkness into light, how he will never forsake his own, how he will restore his people and how those who call upon his name will glorify him. And so God is the one who gives grace through Christ. It is God who is the one who grants faith through the gospel. It is God who is the one who works in our lives for his glory. And this verse is saying that God doesn't ultimately do it for us. He does it for his own glory. And as God is exalted in all of his perfect works and purposes, that's where we will then find our joy and find our satisfaction in him. If God were to exalt anything else or anyone else over his own name, then he would be an idolater. If God exalts anything else, any other purpose, any other name, then he would be an idolater. And so God, the giver of the power and the enabler of the obedience, gets the glory. And Paul's not the only one who talk like this, turn with me, if you will, to 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 11. It's a familiar verse who says the same thing. I just want you to see it from a different apostle this morning. 1 Peter 4, 11, where Peter writes, whoever speaks as one who speaks the oracles of God. And whoever serves, we ought to be doing it, he's saying, as one who serves by the strength that God supplies. And we look at this verse and we rightly should say we're speaking gifts and there's serving gifts and we all do it uh, for God's glory. And, and that's what it says in order, the middle of verse 11, in order that in everything 
God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. To him belong glory and dominion forever and ever. It's reminding us the very purpose that we're speaking and serving is all done in order that in everything God may be glorified. Do you see the connection there that Peter's making? He's saying that when we speak the oracles of God and when we serve, we're doing so in the strength that he provides. And this is all done for what? That in order that in everything God may be glorified through Jesus Christ. And so I appreciate, again, John Piper talks a lot about this biblical truth that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And he must exalt himself in all things, lest he exalt something over the glory and the majesty of his own name. Piper says that when he is teaching on this doctrine, what, what I was confused by when I first heard, what maybe you're hearing articulated in a way, maybe you've heard, maybe you haven't heard before, he often gets a little bit of pushback, he says, when he teaches on this, and he gets, uh, gets this question, which is this. The question would be, well, if we are to serve a God who aims at the exaltation of his own name, then is this God really a loving God? I mean, not only does God tell us that we are to exalt his name, but he exalts his own name. And so the question is often asked, is that a loving thing for God to do or is that a selfish or even prideful thing for God to do? And Piper says that when there are those, that question comes to him, he gives two answers for that question and they're both found in Romans. First, Romans 10, 13, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So yes, it is a loving thing for God to exalt his own name and to exalt his own glory because everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. For him to not, uh, for, for, for him not to spread and exalt his name as our only hope would be him being an unloving God. If he is not giving us answers to our sin problem, then he would be an unloving God. If he were not providing a means of salvation through Christ, then he would be an unloving God. If there were any other way to be saved that he's not telling us about, then he would be an unloving God. But he does tell us the way. And so he is a loving God because part of his goal in exalting himself is in redeeming those who would repent and believe. And so that's one answer given is that God is a loving God because he still saves people. The second answer that Piper likes to give is given in Romans 5.2, where Paul says that we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. In other words, the glory of God is our hope and our salvation and our exaltation. The glory of God is our joy. We don't just call upon the name of the Lord to get something else. We call upon the name of the Lord so that every sin and every weight and every enslaving habit that keeps us from the Lord will be overcome by the grace of God and will have access, we have access now to the Lord himself. We rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Therefore, it is a loving thing for God to make the name of God, that is the glory of God, the goal of all of his grace because this grace and joy is also the goal of all of our longings if we are in Christ. So let me ask you this morning, is he? 
Is the goal of all of your longings found in God? Is he the satisfaction of your deepest desires? Well, if so, then the gospel of grace will make sense to you and you will embrace it by faith. If not, call upon the name of the Lord so that he would open your eyes to see the light of the gospel in the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And so it's all about God's glory being exalted over all things, but it's also about, number two, it's also about Christ being magnified among the nations. He's going to do what he does for the sake of his name among all the nations. The ultimate goal of God's dealings is that his name or the name of Christ, who is his image, would be known, would be admired, would be cherished, would be praised over all else. And this is to happen not just in one heart or in one nation, but to the ends of the earth. I believe that's why God put it in Christopher Columbus's heart to some degree that there's worlds unknown that we have to explore. And he says in his own diary, it's to take the gospel to the nations. This is part of Paul's heart that he wants to take the gospel beyond the known world of the Roman Empire. We know this is also all through the scriptures. In Psalm 46, verse 10, be still and know that I am God. So many people know and love Psalm 46, 10, and I think we should. Be still and know that I am God. But do you know what the rest of the verse says? Do you know the rest of Psalm 46, 10? It then says in the same verse, I will be exalted among the nations and I will be exalted in the earth. And so not only are we to be still before God and not only are we to dig deep into God's word and to know him and to understand all of his attributes, but we are also to have the privilege and the responsibility of serving a God who will be exalted among the nations and in all the earth. Philippians 2, 9 through 11, therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God has and he will exalt Jesus above all powers, above all thrones, above all nature, above all wisdom, above all authorities. And so, we see this even in the end in Revelation 5, 9 through 10, where we read, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you've made a, a kingdom of priests, you've made them into a, a kingdom of priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. And so if God is so focused on exalting his own name over all things in our lives and over all things in this world, shouldn't we be? I mean, I pray that Placerita Bible Church would always be a missions-minded, missions-sending, and missions-going church. That's why we have three mission trips being planned for this summer. This is why I travel two or three times a year internationally to preach the gospel. This is why we do a special Christmas in October offering. This is why we have a missions Sunday. This is why we regularly pray for our missionaries. God is not satisfied with your American Christianity. 
He wants to be exalted in the earth, in all nations, and he will be. God is bringing about the obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. Next week, we'll look at number two, the specific inclusion of God to save those called from eternity past. And then number three, the successful impact of the gospel to radically transform people. But the take home for this morning would just simply be these three questions. Are you living your life as though you were under the law or as though you were under grace? Does grace rule like a monarch in your life and you are its citizen, that you're no longer enslaved to your sinful nature, but you are now a servant of Christ? Are you living your life as though you're under the law, out of fear, out of condemnation, out of just trying to get it right for getting it right's sake so that you don't have a guilty conscience? Is that what motivates you? Are you living under grace, not abusing grace, but receiving grace? and allowing that jet engine of grace to propel you in your daily obedience. Number two, is the faith that God has given you evidenced in your obedience to him? No one's saying that works save you. We're saying there's evidence of a transformed life and a life of obedience and a life of walking in truth and walking in repentance and bearing fruit. Is that evident in your life? And number three, how are you appreciating the fact that all grace and all faith that is worked out in our lives is done for the sake of his name? It's not done for you, ultimately, just for your own sake or for your marriage or your family, ultimately. All those things are to be reflecting the glory of God, that we do what we do for the sake of his name, that he would be exalted among the nations. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to do a deep dive in Romans chapter one, verse five. Thank you for allowing us to just mine out some truths from these three simple phrases that we wanna understand the the grace and apostleship that belong to Paul. And we wanna understand the obedience of faith that we are to employ and to exercise. And we want to understand that it's all for the sake of your name that you would be exalted among the nations. God, forgive us for having too small of a God, too small of an understanding, too small of a focus or purpose. Sometimes we just get wrapped up into the here and now and to our own lives and our own immediate family and friends. Help us to have a, a wide view of what you're doing and what you've called us to, to spread a passion for the supremacy of God, and to broadcast the glory of God in all things for all peoples and that we wouldn't rest until that's been accomplished in your strength and for your glory, God. So help us today as we think and discuss these things that you would radically change us and empower us to be faithful ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen.